How intelligent are you? Another thing I do when I speak to groups is to ask people to rate their intelligence on a 1 to 10 scale, with 10 being the top. Typically, one or two people will rate themselves a 10. When these people raise their hands, I normally suggest that they go home. Presumably, they've got more important things to do than be listening to me. Beyond this, I'll get a sprinkling of 9s and a heavier concentration of 8s. Invariably, though, the bulk of any audience puts itself at 7 or 6. The responses decline from there, though I admit I never actually complete the survey. I stop at 2, preferring to save anyone who would actually claim an intelligence level of 1 the embarrassment of acknowledging that in public. Why do I always get the bell-shaped curve? I believe it's because we've come to take for granted certain ideas about intelligence. What's interesting is that most people do put their hands up and rate themselves on this question in the first place. They don't seem to see any problem with the question itself and are happy to put themselves somewhere on the scale. Only a few have challenged the form of the question and asked what I mean by intelligence. I think that's what everyone should do. I'm convinced that taking the definition of intelligence for granted is one of the main reasons why so many people underestimate their true intellectual abilities and fail to find their element. This common sense view goes something like this. We're all born with a fixed amount of intelligence. It's a trait like blue or green eyes or long or short limbs. Intelligence shows itself in certain types of activity, especially in math and our use of words. It's possible to measure how much intelligence we have through pencil and paper tests and to express this as a numerical grade. That's it. Put as bluntly as this, I trust this definition of intelligence sounds as questionable as it is. But essentially, this definition runs through much of Western culture, and a good bit of Eastern culture as well. It's at the heart of our education systems, and underpins a great deal of the multi-billion dollar testing industries that feed off public education throughout the world. It's the heart of the idea of academic ability. It dominates college entrance examinations, underpins the hierarchy of subjects in education, and stands as the foundation for the whole idea of IQ. This way of thinking about intelligence has a long history in Western culture, and dates back at least to the days of the great Greek philosophers Aristotle and Plato. Its most recent flowering was in the great period of intellectual advances of the 17th and 18th centuries that we know as the Enlightenment. Philosophers and scholars aim to establish a firm basis for human knowledge and to end the superstitions and mythologies about human existence that they believe had clouded the minds of previous generations. One of the pillars of this new movement was a firm belief in the importance of logic and critical reasoning. Philosophers argued that we shouldn't accept as knowledge anything that could not be proved through logical reasoning, especially in words and mathematical proofs. The problem was where to begin this process without taking anything for granted that might be logically questionable. The famous conclusion of the philosopher René Descartes was that the only thing that he could take for granted was his own existence. Otherwise, he couldn't have these thoughts in the first place. His thesis was, I think, therefore I am. The other pillar of the Enlightenment was a growing belief in the importance of evidence in support of scientific ideas, evidence that one could observe through the human senses rather than superstition or hearsay. These two pillars of reason and evidence became the foundations of an intellectual revolution that transformed the outlook and achievements of the Western world. It led to the growth of the scientific method, and an avalanche of insights, analysis and classification of ideas, objects and phenomena that have extended the reach of human knowledge to the depths of the earth and to the far ends of the known universe. 
It led, too, to the spectacular advances in practical technology that gave rise to the Industrial Revolution, and to the supreme domination of these forms of thought in scholarship, in politics, in commerce, and in education. The influence of logic and evidence extended beyond the so-called hard sciences. They also shaped the formative theories in the human sciences, including psychology, sociology, anthropology, and medicine. As public education grew in the 19th and 20th centuries, it too was based on these newly dominant ideas about knowledge and intelligence. As mass education grew to meet the growing demands of the Industrial Revolution, there was also a need for quick and easy forms of selection and assessment. The new science of psychology was in hand with new theories about how intelligence could be tested and measured. For the most part, intelligence was defined in terms of verbal and mathematical reasoning. These were also the processes that were used to quantify the results. The most significant idea in the middle of all of this was IQ. So it is that we came to think of real intelligence in terms of logical analysis. Believing that rationalist forms of thinking were superior to feeling and emotion, and that the ideas that really count can be conveyed in words or through mathematical expressions. In addition, we believed that we could quantify intelligence and rely on IQ tests and standardised tests like SAT to identify who among us is truly intelligent and deserving of exalted treatment. Ironically, Alfred Binet, one of the creators of the IQ test, intended the test to serve precisely the opposite function. In fact, he originally designed it, on commission from the French government, exclusively to identify children with special needs, so they could get appropriate forms of schooling. He never intended it to identify degrees of intelligence or so-called mental worth. In fact, Binet himself noted that the scale he created does not permit the measure of intelligence, as he said, because intellectual qualities are not superposable, and therefore, he said, cannot be measured as linear surfaces are measured. Nor did he ever intend to suggest that a person could not become more intelligent over time. Some recent thinkers, he said, have affirmed that an individual's intelligence is a fixed quantity, a quantity that cannot be increased. We must protest and react against this brutal pessimism. We must try, he said, to demonstrate that it is founded on nothing. Still, some educators and psychologists took and continue to take IQ numbers to absurd lengths. In 1916, Lewis Terman of Stanford University published a revision of Binet's IQ test. Known as the Stanford Binet test, now in its fifth version, it's the basis of the modern IQ test. It's interesting to note, though, that Terman had a sadly extreme view of human capacity. These are his words from the textbook The Measurement of Intelligence. Among labouring men and servant girls, he said, there are thousands like them feeble-minded. They are the world's hewers of wood and drawers of water. And yet... As far as intelligence is concerned, the tests have told the truth, he said. No amount of school instruction will ever make them intelligent voters or capable voters in the true sense of the word. Terman was an active player in one of the darker stages of education and public policy, one there is a good chance you're unaware of, because most historians choose to leave it unmentioned, the way they might a crazy aunt or an unfortunate drinking incident in college. The eugenics movement sought to weed out entire sectors of the population by arguing that such traits as criminality and pauperism were hereditary, and that it was possible to identify these traits through intelligence testing. Perhaps most appalling among the movement's claims was the notion that entire ethnic groups, including Southern Europeans, Jews, Africans and Latinos, fell into such categories. Terman wrote, 
The fact that one might meet this type with such frequency among Indians, Mexicans and Negroes suggests quite forcibly that the whole question of racial differences in mental traits will have to be taken up anew and by experimental methods. Children of this group should be segregated in special classes and be given instruction which is concrete and practical. They cannot master, he said, but they can often be made efficient workers, able to look out for themselves. There's no possibility at present of convincing society that they should not be allowed to reproduce, although from a eugenic point of view they constitute a grave problem because of their unusually prolific breeding. The movement actually managed to succeed in lobbying for the passage of involuntary sterilisation laws in 30 American states. This meant that the state could neuter people who fell below a particular IQ without their having any say in the matter. That each state eventually repealed the laws is a testament to common sense and compassion. That the laws existed in the first place is a frightening indication of how dangerously limited any standardised test is in calculating intelligence and the capacity to contribute to society. IQ tests can even be a matter of life and death. A criminal who commits a capital offence is not subject to the death penalty if his IQ is below 70. However, IQ scores regularly rise over the course of a generation by as much as 25 points, causing the scale to be reset every 15 to 20 years to maintain a mean score of 100. Therefore, someone who commits a capital offence may be more likely to be put to death at the beginning of a cycle than at the end. That's giving a single test an awful lot of responsibility. People can also improve their scores through study and practice. I read a case recently about a death row inmate who at that point spent 10 years in jail on a life sentence. He wasn't the trigger man, but he'd been involved in a robbery where someone died. During his incarceration, he took a series of courses. When retested, his IQ had risen more than 10 points, suddenly making him eligible for execution. Of course, most of us won't ever be in a situation where we're sterilised or given a lethal injection because of our IQ scores, but looking at these extremes allows us to ask some important questions. Namely, what are these numbers, and what do they truly say about our intelligence? The answer is that the numbers largely indicate a person's ability to perform on a test of certain sorts of mathematical and verbal reasoning. In other words, they measure some types of intelligence, not the whole of intelligence. And, as noted above, the baseline keeps shifting to accommodate improvements in the population as a whole over time. Our fascination with IQ is a corollary to our fascination with, and great dependence on, standardised testing in our schools. Teachers spend large chunks of every school year preparing their students for statewide tests that will determine everything from the child's placement in classes the following year to the amount of funding the school will receive. These tests, of course, do nothing to take the child's or the school's special skills and needs into consideration, yet they have a tremendous say in the child's scholastic fate. The standardised test that currently has the most impact on a child's academic future in America is the SAT. Interestingly, Carl Brigham, the inventor of the SAT, was also a eugenicist. He conceived the test for the military, and to his credit, he disowned it five years later, rejecting eugenics at the same time. However, by this point, Harvard and other Ivy League schools had begun to use it as a measure of applicant acceptability. For nearly seven decades, most American colleges have used it, or the similar ACT, as an essential part of their screening processes, though some colleges are beginning to rely upon it less. The SAT is in many ways the indicator for what's wrong with standardised tests. It only measures a certain kind of intelligence, it does it in an entirely impersonal way, it attempts to make common assumptions about the college potential of a hugely varied group of teenagers in a one-size-fits-all fashion. 
and it drives high school juniors and seniors to spend hundreds of hours preparing for it at the expense of school study or the pursuit of other passions. John Katzman, founder of the Princeton Review, offers this stinging criticism. What makes the SAT bad, he says, is that it has nothing to do with what kids learn in high school. As a result, it creates a sort of shadow curriculum that furthers the goals of neither educators nor students. The SAT has been sold as snake oil. It measured intelligence, verified high school GPA and predicted college grades. In fact, it's never done the first two at all, nor a particularly good job of the third. Yet, students who don't test well, or who aren't particularly strong at the kind of reasoning the SAT assesses, can find themselves making compromises on their collegiate futures, all because we've come to accept that intelligence comes with a number attached. This notion is pervasive, and it extends well beyond academia. Remember the bell-shaped curve we discussed earlier? It presents itself every time I ask people how intelligent they think they are because we've come to define intelligence far too narrowly. We think we know the answer to the question, how intelligent are you? The real answer, though, is that the question itself is the wrong one to ask. How are you intelligent? I think the real question to ask is not how intelligent are you, but how are you intelligent? The difference in these two questions is profound. The first suggests that there's a finite way of gauging intelligence and that we can reduce the value of each individual's intelligence to a figure or a quotient of some sort. The second question suggests the truth that we somehow don't acknowledge as much as we should, that there's a variety of ways to express intelligence, and that no one scale could ever measure it. The nature of intelligence has always been a matter of controversy, especially among the many professional specialists who spend their lives thinking about it. They disagree about what it is, about who has it, and about how much of it there is out there. In a survey conducted in the United States several years ago, a sample of psychologists attempted to define intelligence, choosing and commenting from a list of 25 attributes. Only three were mentioned by 25% or more of the respondents. As one commentator put it, if we were asking experts to describe edible field mushrooms so that we could distinguish them from the poisonous kinds, and the experts responded like this, we might consider prudent to avoid the subject altogether. There have always been criticisms of definitions of intelligence based only on IQ, and in recent years they have been gaining in number and strength. There's a range of alternative, sometimes competing theories that argue that intelligence takes in much more than IQ tests can ever hope to assess. Harvard psychologist Howard Gardner has argued to wider claim that we have not one but multiple intelligences. They include linguistic, musical, mathematical, spatial, kinesthetic, interpersonal relationships with others and intrapersonal knowledge and understanding of the self intelligence. He argues that these types of intelligence are more or less independent of each other and that none is more important though some might be dominant while others are dormant. He says that we all have different strengths in different intelligences and that education should treat them equally so that all children receive opportunities to develop their individual abilities. Robert Sternberg is a professor of psychology at Tufts University and a past president of the American Psychological Association. He's a long-term critic of traditional approaches to intelligence testing and IQ. He argues that there are three types of intelligence. Analytic intelligence, the ability to solve problems using academic skills and to complete conventional IQ tests. Creative intelligence, the ability to deal with novel situations and to come up with original solutions. And what he calls practical intelligence, the ability to deal with problems and challenges in everyday life. Psychologist and best-selling author Daniel Goleman 
has argued in his books that there is emotional intelligence and social intelligence, both of which are essential to getting along with ourselves and with the world around us. Robert Cooper, author of The Other 90%, says that we shouldn't think of intelligence as happening only in the brain, in our skulls. He talks of the heart brain and the gut brain. Whenever we have a direct experience, he says, it doesn't go directly to the brain in our heads. The first place it goes to is the neurological networks of the intestinal tract and heart. He describes the first of these, the enteric nervous system, as a second brain inside the intestines, which is independent of, but also interconnected with, the brain in the cranium. He says that this is why we often experience our first reaction to events as a gut reaction. Whether or not we acknowledge them, he says, our gut reactions shape everything we do. Other psychologists and intelligence testers worry about all of these sorts of ideas. They say there's no quantifiable evidence at all to prove their existence. Well, that may be. But the clear fact of everyday experience is that human intelligence is diverse and multifaceted. For evidence, we need only look at the extraordinary richness and complexity of human culture and achievement. Whether we can ever capture all of this in a single theory of intelligence with three, five, or seven, or eight categories, that's a problem for the theorists. Meanwhile, the evidence of a basic truth of human ability is everywhere. We think about our experiences in all the ways we have them. It's clear, too, that we all have different strengths and natural aptitudes. I mentioned earlier that I don't have a particular aptitude for mathematics. Actually, I don't have any aptitude for it. Alexis Lemaire, on the other hand, does. Lemaire is a young French doctoral student specialising in artificial intelligence. In 2007, he claimed the world record for calculating in his head the 13th root of a random 200-digit number. He did this in 72.4 seconds. In case, like me, you're not sure what this even means, let me explain. Alexis sat in front of a laptop computer that had generated at random a 200-figure number and displayed it on the screen. The number was more than 17 lines long. This is a big number. Alexei's task was to calculate in his head the 13th root of that number. That is, the number that multiplied by itself 13 times would produce the exact 200-digit number on the screen. He stared at the screen without speaking and then announced correctly that the answer was 2397-207-667-966701. Remember that he did this in 72.4 seconds, in his head. Lemaire performed this feat at the New York Hall of Science. He'd been working on the 13th route challenge for a number of years. Previously, his best time had been a sluggish 77 seconds. Afterwards, he told the press, The first digit is very easy. The last digit is very easy. But the inside numbers are extremely difficult. I use an artificial intelligence system on my own brain instead of on a computer. I believe most people can do it. But I also have a high-speed mind. My brain works sometimes very, very fast. I use a process to improve my skills to behave like a computer. It's like running a program in my head to control my brain. Sometimes, he said, when I do multiplication, my brain works so fast that I need to take medication. I think somebody without a very fast brain can also do this kind of multiplication, but this may be easier for me because my brain is faster.
he practices math regularly. So that he can think faster, he exercises, doesn't drink caffeine or alcohol, and avoids foods that are high in sugar or fat. His experience of math is so intense that he also has to take regular time off to rest his brain. Otherwise, he thinks that there's a danger that too much math could be bad for his health and his heart. I've always felt that too much math can be bad for my health and my heart as well, but for different reasons. Surprisingly, like me, he didn't do particularly well at math in school, though the comparisons between us end right there. He was not top of the class in math and mainly taught himself through books. He did have a natural flair for numbers, though, which he discovered when he was about 11 years old, and which he's refined and cultivated through constantly challenging himself and by developing sophisticated techniques to exploit it. But the foundation of all of these achievements is a unique personal aptitude, combined with a deep passion and commitment. When he's digging around in huge numbers to unearth their roots, Alexis Lemaire is clearly in his element. The Three Features of Human Intelligence Human intelligence seems to have at least three main features. The first is that it is extraordinarily diverse. It's clearly not limited to the ability to do verbal and mathematical reasoning. These skills are important, but they are simply among the ways in which intelligence expresses itself. Gordon Parks was a legendary photographer who captured the black American experience in a way that few others ever had. He was the first black producer and director of a major Hollywood film, he helped found Essence magazine and served as its editorial director for three years. He was a gifted poet, novelist and memoirist. He was a talented composer who created his own form of musical notation to write his works. And he was professionally trained at none of this. In fact, Gordon Parks barely attended high school. Parks' mother died when he was 15 and soon after he found himself on the streets unable to graduate. The schooling he did get was discouraging. He often mentioned that one of his teachers told her students that college would be a waste of time for them since they were destined to become porters and house cleaners. Still, he uses intelligence in ways few could match. He taught himself to play the piano and this helped him to make some money to get by in his late teens. A few years later, he bought a camera from a pawn shop and taught himself to take pictures. What he learned about film and writing came largely from observation an intense level of intellectual curiosity and an off-the-charts ability to feel for and see into the lives of other people. I just kept on and on, he said in an interview at the Smithsonian Institute, and I had an indomitable courage as far as getting started in photography was concerned. I realised I liked it, and I went all out for it. My wife at this time was sort of against it, and my mother-in-law, as all mothers-in-law are, was against it too. I spent this dough and decided to get myself some cameras. That's just about what happened. I had a tremendous interest and I just kept plugging away and knocking at doors, seeking out encouragement wherever I could get it. My life, to me, is like sort of a disjointed dream, he said in a PBS interview. Things have happened to me. Incredible. It's so disjointed. But all I know, it was a constant effort, a constant feeling that I must not fail. Parks's contribution to American culture is considerable. His searing photography, most notably American Gothic, which juxtaposed a black woman holding a mop and a broom against the American flag. His inspired film work, including the breakout hit Shaft, which introduced Hollywood to the black action hero, his unconventional prose work, and his unique musical work. I don't know if Gordon Parks ever took a standardised academic test or a college entrance exam. 
Given his lack of traditional education, there's a good chance he wouldn't have scored particularly high in one if he had. Interestingly, while he never completed high school, he amassed 40 honorary doctorates, dedicating one of them to the teacher who'd been so dismissive when he was in high school. Yet by any reasonable definition of the word, Gordon Parks was remarkably intelligent, a rare human being with an uncanny ability to learn and master complex and nuanced art forms. I could only guess that Parks considered himself intelligent. However, if he was like so many others I've met in my travels, his lack of formal education might have caused him to rate himself much lower than he should have, in spite of his numerous and obvious gifts. As the stories of Gordon Parks, Mick Fleetwood and Bart Connor indicate, intelligence can show itself in ways that have little or nothing to do with numbers and words. We think about the world in all the ways that we experience it, including all the different ways we use our senses, however many of those there turn out to be. We think in sound, we think in movement, we think visually. I worked for a long time with the Royal Ballet in Britain, and I came to see that dance is a powerful way to express ideas and that dancers use multiple forms of intelligence, kinesthetic, rhythmic, musical and mathematical, to accomplish this. Were mathematical and verbal intelligence the only kinds that existed, ballet never would have been created. Nor would abstract painting, hip-hop, design, architecture or self-service checkouts at supermarkets. The diversity of intelligence is one of the fundamental underpinnings of the element. If you don't embrace the fact that you think about the world in a wide variety of ways, you severely limit your chances of finding the person that you were meant to be. An individual who represents this wonderful diversity is R. Buckminster Fuller, best known for his design of the geodesic dome and his coining of the term Spaceship Earth. Certainly his greatest accomplishments come in the field of engineering, which of course requires the use of mathematical, visual and interpersonal intelligences. But he was also a clever and unusual writer, a philosopher who challenged the beliefs of a generation, an ardent environmentalist years before the emergence of a true environmental movement, and a challenging and nurturing university professor. He did all of this by eschewing formal education. He was the first in four generations in his family not to graduate from Harvard, and by setting out to experience the world to use the fullest range of his intelligence. He joined the Navy, started a building supply company, and worked as a mechanic in a textile mill and a labourer in a meatpacking plant. Fuller seemingly saw no limits on his ability to use every form of intelligence available to him. The second feature of intelligence is that it's tremendously dynamic. The human brain is intensely interactive. You use multiple parts of it in every task you perform. It is in fact in the dynamic use of the brain, finding new connections between things, that true breakthroughs occur. Albert Einstein, for example, took great advantage of the dynamics of intelligence. Einstein's prowess as a scientist and mathematician are legend. But Einstein was a student of all forms of expression, believing that he could put anything that challenged the mind to use in a variety of ways. For instance, he interviewed poets to learn more about the role of intuition and the imagination. In his biography of Einstein, Walter Isaacson says, As a young student, Einstein never did well with rote learning, and later, as a theorist, his success came not from the brute strength of his mental processing power, but from his imagination and creativity. He could construct complex equations, but more important, he knew that math is the language nature uses to describe her wonders. When confounded by a challenge in his work, Einstein often turns the violin to help him. A friend of Einstein's told Isaacson he would often play his violin in his kitchen late at night, improvising melodies while he pondered complicated problems. Then suddenly in the middle of playing he would announce excitedly, I've got it! As if by inspiration, the answer to the problem would have come to him in the midst of the music. 
What Einstein seemed to understand is that intellectual growth and creativity come through embracing the dynamic nature of intelligence. Growth comes through analogy, through seeing how things connect, rather than only seeing how they might be different. Certainly, the epiphany stories in this book indicate that many of the moments when things suddenly come clear happen from seeing new connections between events, ideas and circumstances. The third feature of intelligence is that it's entirely distinctive. Every person's intelligence is as unique as a fingerprint. There might be seven, ten, or a hundred different forms of intelligence. But each of us uses these forms in different ways. My profile of abilities involves a different combination of dominant and dominant intelligences than yours. The person down the street has another profile entirely. Twins use their intelligences differently from one another, as do people on opposite sides of the globe. This brings us back to the question I asked earlier, how are you intelligent? Knowing that intelligence is diverse, dynamic and distinctive allows you to address that question in new ways. This is one of the core components of the element. When you explode your preconceived ideas about intelligence, you can begin to see your own intelligence in new ways. No person is a single intellectual score on a linear scale. And no two people with the same scores will do the same things, share all of the same passions or accomplish the same amount with their lives. Discovering the element is all about allowing yourself access to all of the ways in which you experience the world and discovering where your own true strengths lie. Just don't take them for granted. Chapter 3. Beyond Imagining Faith Ringgold is an acclaimed artist, best known for her painted story quilts. She's exhibited in major museums all over the world and her works in the permanent collections of the Guggenheim Museum the Metropolitan Museum of Art and the Museum of Modern Art. In addition, she is an award-winning writer, having received the Caldecott honour for her first book, Tar Beach. She's also composed and recorded songs. Faith's life brims with creativity. Interestingly, though, she found herself on this path when illness kept her out of school. She got asthma when she was two, and because of this, she had a late start to formal education. During our interview together, she told me that she'd felt that being out of school with asthma made a positive difference in her development. Because, she said, I was not around for some of the indoctrinations, you know. I wasn't around to be really formed in the way that I think a lot of kids are formed in a regimented society, which a school is, and I guess it has to be in a sense. Because when you have a lot of people in one space, she says, you have to move them around in a certain way to make it work. I just didn't ever get hooked into the regimentation. I missed all of kindergarten and the first grade. By the second grade, I was going, but every year I'd be absent for at least, I don't know, maybe two or three weeks with asthma. And I absolutely didn't mind missing those classes. Her mother worked hard with her to help her keep pace with what she was missing in school. And when they weren't studying, they were able to explore the wider world of the arts that existed all around Harlem in the 1930s. My mother took me to see all the great acts of that time, she said. Duke Ellington, Billie Holiday, Billy Eckstein all these old singers and band leaders and all those people who are so wonderful. And so these were the ones who I thought of as being highly creative. It was so obvious that they were making this art out of their own bodies. We all lived in the same neighbourhood. You just ran into them, here they are, you know. I was deeply inspired by their art and by their willingness to give of themselves to the public and to their audience. It made me understand about the communication aspect of being an artist. I was never forced to be like the other kids, she said. I didn't dress like them, I didn't look like them, and in my family, it wasn't expected that I should be like that. So it came quite natural to me to do something that was considered a bit odd. My mother was a fashion designer. She was an artist herself, although she had never said that she was an artist. She helped me a lot. 
but she was very keen on the fact that she didn't know whether art would be a good lifetime endeavour. When Faith at last began going to school full-time, she found encouragement and excitement in her art classes. She said, We had art in elementary school straight through. An excellent experience. Excellent. I distinctly recall my teachers getting excited about some of the things that I'd done, and me kind of wondering, why do they think this is so good? But I never said anything. In, in junior high school, the teacher did a project with us in which he wanted us to try to see without looking. We were supposed to paint these flowers in that way, and I said, oh my God, I don't want you to see this, because this is really awful. And she held it up and said, now this is really wonderful. Look at this, everybody. Now I know why she liked it. It was free, and it was the same kind of thing that I like when I see children do art. It's expressive. It's wonderful. This is the kind of magic that children have. Children don't see anything so strange and different about art. They accept it. They understand it. They love it. They walk into a museum, and they're looking all around. They don't feel threatened, whereas adults do. They think there are some messages there that they don't get, that they're supposed to have something to say or do in relation to these works of art. The children can just accept it, because somehow or other, they're born that way, and they stay that way until they begin to start picking themselves apart. Now, maybe it's because we start picking them apart. I try not to do that, but the world is going to pick them apart, and you know, judge them this way and that. This doesn't look like a tree, or this doesn't look like a man. When children are little, they're not paying attention to that. They're just... They're just unfolding right before your eyes. This is my mummy, and this is my daddy, and we went to the house and cut down the tree, and this and that and the other. And they tell you a whole story about it, and they accept it, and they think it's wonderful. And I do too, because they're completely unrepressed where these things are concerned. I think children have the same natural ability in music, said Faith. Their little voices, she said, are like little bells that they're ringing. I went to a school where I did a 40-minute session with each of the grades, starting with the pre-kindergarten, going all the way up to the sixth grade. I did this art session with them in which they would read from a book and then I would teach them. I would show them some of my slides and then I would teach them how to sing my song, Anyone Can Fly. They just picked that up, whether they were little pre-kindergarten, kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade. By the fifth grade, you're running into trouble. Their little voices are no longer like bells. They're feeling ashamed of themselves, you know, and some of them who can still sing will not. Fortunately, Faith never felt stifled in this way. She loved exploring her creativity from an early age, and she managed to keep that spark alive into adulthood. I think the minute that I started studying art in college in 1948, she said, I knew I wanted to be an artist. I didn't know which road I'd take, how it would happen, or how I could be that, but I knew that was my goal. My dream was to be an artist, one who makes pictures for a lifetime as a way of life. Every day of your life, you can create something wonderful, so every day is going to be the same kind of wonderful day that every other day is, a day in which you discover something new, because as you're painting or creating whatever it is you're creating, you're finding new ways in doing it. The Promise of Creativity I mentioned that I like to ask audiences how intelligent they feel they are. I usually ask these same people how they rate their creativity. As with intelligence, I use a 1 to 10 scale with 10 at the top. And, as with intelligence, most people rate themselves somewhere in the middle. Out of perhaps a thousand people, fewer than twenty give themselves ten for creativity. A few more will put their hands up for nine and eight. On the other hand, a handful always put themselves at two or one. I think the people are mostly wrong in these assessments, just as they are about their intelligence. But the real point of this exercise reveals itself when I ask how many people gave themselves different marks for intelligence and for creativity. Typically, between two-thirds and three-quarters of the audience raise their hands at this point. Why is this? 
I think it's because most people believe that intelligence and creativity are entirely different things. That we can be very intelligent and not very creative, or very creative and not very intelligent. For me, this identifies a fundamental problem. A lot of my work with organisations is about showing that intelligence and creativity are blood relatives. I firmly believe that you can't be creative without acting intelligently. Similarly, the highest form of intelligence is thinking creatively. In seeking the element, it's essential to understand the real nature of creativity and to have a clear understanding of how it relates to intelligence. In my experience, most people have a narrow view of intelligence, tending to think of it mainly in terms of academic ability. This is why so many people who are smart in other ways end up thinking that they're not smart at all. There are myths surrounding creativity as well. One myth is that only special people are creative. This is not true. Everyone is born with tremendous capacities for creativity. The trick is to develop these capacities. Creativity is very much like literacy. We take it for granted that nearly everybody can learn to read and write. If a person can't read or write, you don't assume that this person is incapable of it, just that he or she hasn't learned how to do it. The same is true of creativity. When people say they're not creative, it's often because they don't know what's involved or how creativity works in practice. Another myth is that creativity is about special activities. So people think it's about so-called creative domains like the arts, design or advertising. These often do involve a high level of creativity. But so can science, math, engineering, running a business, being an athlete or getting in or out of a relationship. The fact is you can be creative at anything at all. Anything that involves your intelligence. The third myth is that people are either creative or they're not. This myth suggests that creativity, like IQ, is an allegedly fixed trait, like eye colour, and that you can't do much about it. In truth, it's entirely possible to become more creative in your work and in your life. The first critical step is for you to understand the intimate relationship between creativity and intelligence. This is one of the surest paths to finding the element, and it involves stepping back to examine a fundamental feature of all human intelligence, our unique powers of imagination. It's all in your imagination. As we discussed in the last chapter, we tend to underestimate the range of our senses and our intelligence. We do the same with our imaginations. In fact, while we largely take our senses for granted, we tend to take our imaginations for granted completely. We'll even criticise people's perceptions by telling them that they have overactive imaginations or that what they believe is all in their imagination. People will pride themselves on being down-to-earth, realistic, no-nonsense and deride those who have, so to speak, their heads in the clouds. And yet, far more than any other power, Imagination is what sets human beings apart from every other species on Earth. Imagination underpins every uniquely human achievement. Imagination led us from caves to cities, from bone clubs to golf clubs, from carrion to cuisine, and from superstition to science. The relationship between imagination and reality is both complicated and profound and this relationship serves a very significant role in the search for the element. If you focus on your actual physical surroundings, you generally assume, I'm sure, that there's a good fit between what you perceive and what's actually there. 
This is why we can drive cars on busy roads, get what we're looking for in shops, and wake up with the right person. We know that in some circumstances, through illness, delirium, or excessive use of controlled substances, for example, even that assumption could be mistaken. But let's keep moving forward for now. We know, too, that we can routinely step outside of our immediate sensory environment and conjure mental images of other places and other times. If I ask you to think of your best friends at school, your favourite food or your most annoying acquaintance, you can do that without having any of those things directly in front of you. This process of seeing, as it were, in our mind's eye, is the essential act of imagination. So my initial definition of imagination is the power to bring to mind things that are not present to our senses. Now, your response to this might very well be, duh, and that would be an appropriate response. But it helps make a critical point that perhaps more than any other capacity, imagination is the one that we take for granted most. This is unfortunate because imagination is vitally important to our lives. Through imagination, we can visit the past, contemplate the present and anticipate the future. We can also do something else of profound and unique significance. We can create. Through imagination, we not only bring to mind things that we have experienced, but things that we have never experienced. We can conjecture, we can hypothesize, we can speculate, and we can suppose. In a word, we can be imaginative. As soon as we have the power to release our minds from the immediate here and now, in a sense, we are free. We're free to revisit the past, free to reframe the present, and free to anticipate a whole range of possible futures. Imagination is the foundation of everything that is uniquely and distinctively human. It's the basis of language, the arts, the sciences, systems of philosophy, and all the vast intricacies of human culture. I can illustrate this power with an example of cosmic proportions. Does size matter? What's the purpose of life? This is another good question. It doesn't seem to bother other species very much, but it bothers human beings quite a bit. The British philosopher Bertrand Russell presented this question simply and brilliantly. It's in three parts, and it's worth reading twice. This is what he said. Is man what he seems to the astronomer, a tiny lump of impure carbon and water crawling impotently on a small and unimportant planet? Or is he what he appears to Hamlet? Or is he perhaps both at once? Is man what he seems to the astronomer, a tiny lump of impure carbon and water crawling impotently on a small and unimportant planet? Or is he what he appears to Hamlet? Or is he perhaps both at once? You'll have to forgive the male language here. Russell wrote this a long time ago, when he didn't know people might frown upon it later. Russell's three questions capture some of the core puzzles of Western, though not necessarily Eastern, philosophy. Is life essentially accidental and meaningless? Or is it as profound and mysterious as Shakespeare's great tragic hero believed it to be? I'll come back to Hamlet in a minute. But let's look first at this idea of our inhabiting a small and unimportant planet. For years now, the Hubble telescope has been beaming back to Earth thousands of dazzling images of distant galaxies, white dwarfs, black holes, nebulas and pulsars. We've all seen spectacular documentaries about the facts and fantasies of space travel, all framed with ungraspable statistics about billions of light-years and infinite distances. 
Most of us now get the point that the universe is gigantic. We also get the point that Earth is relatively small. But how small? It's very hard to get a clear sense of this because with planets, as with everything else, size is relative. Given the immense distances between us and the other heavenly bodies, it's difficult to have much of a basis for comparison. I was delighted to come across a great set of images that helped me get a sense of the relative size of the Earth. Someone had the bright idea of taking distance out of the equation altogether by plucking the Earth and some other planets out of the cosmos and laying them side by side on the floor, like a team photograph. In this way we get some sense of the scale of things, and it's frankly surprising. In the first image, Earth was presented side by side with some of its nearest neighbours, Venus, Mars and Mercury. Pluto was also added to the image. The Earth looks rather good here, especially in relation to Mars and Mercury. I think too, when you look at these images, that we're less worried than ever about being invaded by Martian hordes. Uh, bring it on, I'd say. Pluto, by the way, is no longer a planet, and if you see how small it is in relation to the Earth, frankly we can see why that is. What were we thinking of in the first place? It's barely a boulder. Let's pull back a bit now. If we put the Earth in side-by-side -side comparison with Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus and Neptune, suddenly the whole scenario seems a bit less encouraging. The Earth looks a little less impressive now. Still, we're holding our own, I mean, at least we're visible. We already know, though, that there's more to the story. For instance, we know that Earth is small when compared with the Sun. But how small? On this scale, the Earth is the size of a grape seed, and we should stop talking about Pluto altogether. But as big as it is, the Sun is far from the cosmic giant it seems in comparison to Earth and the other planets in our solar system. If we pull back a little more, the picture changes dramatically, even for Sun worshippers. In comparison to Arcturus, Pollux and Sirius, the Sun is dwarfed to the size of a garbanzo bean, and the Earth has simply disappeared on this scale. But even now, we're still comparing ourselves to objects that are comparatively small and close in cosmic terms. If we pull back just once more to take in Betelgeuse and Antares, the Sun is a grain of sand, and Arcturus is a kumquat. Antares, by the way, is the 15th brightest star in the sky. It's more than a thousand light-years away. Astronomers would say it's only a thousand light-years away. A light-year, you'll recall, is the distance that a beam of light travels in a year. That's far. So a thousand light-years sounds impressive, especially if you're Pluto. But it's actually not that much in galactic terms. One of the closest galaxies to our Milky Way, the Megalanic Cloud, is about 170,000 light-years across. It's almost impossible to picture the size of the Earth on this scale. It's pitifully, unimaginably, undetectably small. And yet, we can take away some encouraging things from this. One is a bit of perspective. I mean, really, whatever you woke up worrying about this morning, get over it. How important in the greater scheme of things can it possibly be? Make your peace, apologise and move on. The second is this. At first thought, the fact that Earth is dwarfed by other planets and suns does indeed suggest that the answer to Russell's first question might be yes. We certainly do seem to be clinging to the face of an extraordinarily small and unimportant planet. But that's not really the end of the story. We may well be small and insignificant, but uniquely among all known species on Earth or anywhere else to our knowledge, we're able to do something remarkable. We can conceive of our own insignificance.
Using the power of imagination, I'm able to write about the insignificance of the Earth and to have these thoughts published and recorded, and you're able to understand them. The fact, too, is that as a species, we did produce the Hamlet of which Russell speaks, as well as Mozart's Mass in C, the Blue Mosque, the Sistine Chapel, the Renaissance, Las Vegas, the Silk Road, the poetry of W.B. Yeats, the place of Chekhov, the blues, rock and roll, hip-hop, the theory of relativity, quantum mechanics, industrialism, the Simpsons, digital technology, the Hubble telescope and the whole dazzling cornucopia of human achievements and aspirations. I don't mean to say that no other species on Earth has any form of imaginative ability, but certainly none comes close to showing the complex abilities that flow from the human imagination. Other species communicate, but they don't have laptops. They sing, but they don't produce musicals. They can be agile, but they didn't come up with Cirque du Soleil. They can look worried, but they don't publish theories on the meaning of life and spend their evenings drinking Jack Daniels and listening to Miles Davis. And they don't meet at waterholes, poring over images from the Hubble telescope and trying to figure out what those might mean for themselves and all other hyenas. What accounts for these yawning differences in how humans and other species on our small planet think and behave? My general answer is imagination. But this is really about the much more sophisticated evolution of the human brain and the highly dynamic ways in which it can work. The dynamics of human intelligence account for the phenomenal creativity of the human mind. And our capacity for creativity allows us to rethink our lives and our circumstances and to find our way to the element. The power of creativity. Imagination is not the same as creativity. Creativity takes the process of imagination to another level. My definition of creativity is the process of having original ideas that have value. Imagination can be entirely internal. You could be imaginative all day long without anyone noticing. But you would never say that someone was creative if that person never did anything. To be creative, you actually have to do something. It involves putting your imagination to work, to make something new, to come up with new solutions to problems, even to think of new problems or questions. You can think of creativity as applied imagination. You can be creative at anything at all. Anything that involves using your intelligence. It can be in music, in dance, in theatre, in math, science, business, in your relationships with other people. It's because human intelligence is so wonderfully diverse that people are creative in so many extraordinary ways. Let me give you two very different examples. In 1988, former Beatle George Harrison had a solo album coming out. The album featured a song called This Is Love that both Harrison and his record company felt could be a big hit. A common practice in those pre-download days was for the artist to accompany a single release with a B-side, a song that didn't appear on the album the single appeared on, as added value for consumers. The only problem in this case was that Harrison didn't have a recording to use as a B-side. However, Bob Dylan, Roy Orbison, Tom Petty and Jeff Lynne were all spending time with him in the Los Angeles area where Harrison was living at the time. As Harrison came up with the bones of the song he wanted to record, he realised that Lynn was already working with Orbison. Harrison soon asked Dylan and Petty to join them and to sing along on the song's chorus. In a casual setting, with the minimal pressure associated with recording a B-side, these five rock legends generated Handle With Care, one of the most memorable songs of Harrison's post-Beatle career. When Harrison played the song a few days later for Mo Austin, chairman of Warner Brothers Records, and Lenny Waronka, head of A&R, the two were stunned. Not only was the song much too good to serve as a lowly B-side, but the collaboration generated a sound at once easygoing and brilliant that begged for a grander platform. 
Austin and Waronka wondered to Harrison if the team that created Handle with Care could generate an entire album. Harrison found the idea intriguing and he took it back to his friends. Some logistical items needed addressing. Dylan was going out on a long tour in two weeks and getting everyone in one place after that was going to be a problem. The five decided to squeeze whatever they could into the time they had before Dylan's departure. Using a friend's studio, they laid down the tracks for the entire album. They didn't have months to dedicate to polishing the songwriting, doing dozens of alternate takes or worrying over a guitar part. Instead, they relied on something much more innate. The creative spark generated by five distinctive musical voices joining together. They all collaborated on songs. Each donated vocal harmonies, guitar lines and arrangements. They fed off each other, goaded each other and most importantly had a great time. The result was a recording that was both casual, the song seemed invented on the spot, and unmistakably classic. In fitting with the relaxed nature of the project, the five decided to downplay their stardom and to call their makeshift band the Travelling Wilburys. The album they recorded went on to sell five million copies and spawned multiple hit singles including Handle With Care. Rolling Stone magazine named the Travelling Wilburys one of the hundred best albums of all time. I think that this is a great example of the creative process at work. Here's another one that seems completely different. In the early 1960s, an unknown student at Cornell University threw a plate into the air in the university restaurant. We don't know what happened after that to the student or to the plate. The student may have caught the plate with a smile, or it may have shattered on the floor. Either way, this would not have been an extraordinary event, but for the fact that someone extraordinary happened to be watching it. Richard Feynman was an American physicist and one of the undisputed geniuses of the 20th century. He was famous for his groundbreaking work in several fields, including quantum electrodynamics and nanotechnology. He was also one of the most colourful and admired scientists of his generation, a juggler, a painter, a prankster, and an exuberant jazz musician with a particular passion for playing the bongos. In 1965, he won the Nobel Prize in physics. He says that this was partly because of the flying plate. That afternoon, while I was eating lunch, he said, some kid threw up a plate in the cafeteria. There was a blue medallion on the plate, the Cornell sign, and as he threw up the plate and it came down, the blue thing went around, and it seemed to me that the blue thing went around faster than the wobble, and I wondered what the relationship was between the two. I was just playing, no importance at all, but I played around with the equations of motion of rotating things, and I found out that if the wobble is small the blue thing goes around twice as fast as the wobble goes around. Feynman jotted some thoughts down on his napkin, and after lunch he got on with his day at the university. Sometime later he looked again at the napkin, and carried on playing with the ideas sketched out on it. I started to play with this rotation, and the rotation led me to a similar problem of the rotation of the spin of an electron, according to Dirac's equation, and that just led me back into quantum electrodynamics, which was the problem I'd been working on. I kept continuing now to play with it in the relaxed fashion I'd originally done, and it was just like taking the cork out of a bottle. Everything just poured out, and in very short order I worked the things out for which I later won the Nobel Prize. Apart from the fact that they both spin around, what do making records and understanding electrons have in common that can help us to understand the nature of creativity? As it happens, quite a lot. Creative Dynamics Creativity is the strongest example of the dynamic nature of intelligence, and it can call on all areas of our minds and being. Let me begin with a rough distinction. 
I said earlier that many people think they're not creative because they don't know what's involved. This is true in two different ways. The first is that there are some general skills and techniques of creative thinking that everyone can learn and can apply to nearly any situation. These techniques can help in generating new ideas, in sorting out the useful ones from the less useful ones, and in removing blocks to new thinking, especially in groups. I think of these as the skills of general creativity, and I'm going to say more about them in the chapter on education. What I want to discuss in this chapter is personal creativity, which in some ways is very different. Faith Ringold, the Travelling Wilburys, Richard Feynman, and many of the other people in this book are all highly creative people in their own unique ways. They work in different domains, and individual passions and aptitudes drive them. They found the work they love to do, and discovered a special talent for doing it. They're in their element, and this drives their personal creativity. Having some understanding of how creativity works in general can be instructive here. Creativity is a step beyond imagination because it requires that you actually do something rather than lie around thinking about it. It's a very practical process of trying to make something original. It may be a song, a theory, a dress, a short story, a boat or a new source for your spaghetti. Regardless, some common features pertain. The first is that it is a process. New ideas do sometimes come to people fully formed and without the need for much further work. Usually, though, the creative process begins with an inkling, like Feynman watching the wobble of the plate or George Harrison's first idea for a song, which requires further development. This is a journey that can have many different phases and unexpected turns. It can draw on different sorts of skills and knowledge and end up somewhere entirely unpredicted at the outset. Richard Feynman eventually won the Nobel Prize in Physics but they didn't give it to him for the napkin he'd scribbled on over lunch. Creativity involves several different processes that wind through each other. The first is generating new ideas, imagining different possibilities, considering alternative options. This might involve playing with some notes on an instrument, making some quick sketches, jotting down some thoughts, or moving objects or yourself around in a space. The creative process also involves developing these ideas by judging which work best or feel right. Both of these processes of generating and evaluating ideas are necessary, whether you're writing a song, painting a picture, developing a mathematical theory, taking photographs for a project, writing a book, or designing clothes. These processes don't come in a predictable sequence. Instead, they interact with each other. For example, a creative effort might involve a great deal of idea generation while holding back on the evaluation at the start. But overall, Creative work is a delicate balance between generating ideas and sifting and refining them. Because it's about making things, creative work always involves using media of some sort to develop ideas. The medium can be anything at all. The Wilburys used voices and guitars. Richard Feynman used mathematics. Faith Ringgold's media were paints and fabrics, and sometimes words and music. Creative work also often involves tapping into various talents at your disposal to make something original. Sir Ridley Scott is an award-winning director, with such blockbuster films as Gladiator, Blade Runner, Alien and Thelma and Louise to his credit. His films have a look distinct from other film directors. The source of this look is his training as an artist. Because of my background in fine art, he told me, I have very specific ideas about making films. I've always been told I have this eye. I've never thought about what it is, but I'm usually accused of being too pretty or too beautiful or too this or too that. I've gradually realised that this is an advantage. My first film, The Duelists, was criticised for being too beautiful. One critic complained about the overuse of filters, 
Actually, there were no filters used at all. The filters were 59 days of pissing rain. I think what he was taken by was how I look at the French landscape. Probably the best photographers of the Napoleonic period would be painters. So I looked at the Russian painters of Napoleon going to the front on that disastrous journey to Russia. A lot of great 19th century views on that are frankly just photographic. I would take everything from those and apply that to the film. People who work creatively usually have something in common. They love the media they work with. Musicians love the sounds they make. Natural writers love words. Dancers love movement. Mathematicians love numbers. Entrepreneurs love making deals. Great teachers love teaching. This is why people who fundamentally love what they do don't think of it as work in the ordinary sense of the word. They do it because they want to, and because when they do, they're in their element. This is why Feynman talks about working on the equations of motion just for the fun of it. It's why he talks about playing with the ideas in a relaxed fashion. The Wilburys produced some of their best work when they were just trying things out and having a good time together making music. The fun factor isn't essential to creative work. There are many examples of creative pioneers who are hardly laugh a minute. But sometimes when we're playing around with ideas and laughing, we're most open to new thoughts. In all creative work, there may be frustrations, problems and dead ends along the way. I know some wonderfully creative people who find parts of the process difficult and deeply exasperating. But there's always profound pleasure at some point and a deep sense of satisfaction from getting it right. Many of the people I talk about in this book think they were lucky to find what they love to do. For some of them, it was love at first sight. That's why they call the recognition of their element an epiphany. Finding the medium that excites your imagination, that you love to play with and work in, is an important step to freeing your creative energies. History is full of examples of people who didn't discover their real creative abilities until they discovered the media in which they thought best. In my experience, one of the main reasons that so many other people think they're not creative is that they simply haven't found their medium. There are other reasons which we'll come back to, including the idea of luck. But first, let's look more closely at why the actual media we use are so important to the creative work that we do. Different media help us to think in different ways. A great friend of mine, the designer Nick Egan, recently gave my wife Terry and me two paintings he'd done for us. A couple of things I'd said in some public lectures had moved Nick in a significant way. The first was, if you're not prepared to be wrong, you'll never produce anything original. The second was, great education depends on great teaching. I think both of these are true, which is why I go around saying them. Nick found himself thinking about these ideas and about how they'd applied to his own life growing up and then working as an artist in London. He decided to create some paintings about them, and he worked on them nearly full-time for several weeks. Each of the paintings he did for us features one of those statements and has a kind of visual improvisation on it. They're both powerful images with an almost primal energy. One of them is primarily black, with the words scrawled and scratched into the paint on half of the canvas like graffiti. The other is largely white, with the words written in a childlike way in dripping black paint across the background. One features a glaring cartoon-like face that's somewhere between a cave painting and a child's drawing. At first glance, the paintings seem rushed and chaotic. But a careful examination of the canvases reveals layers upon layers of other images beneath, carefully built up and partly painted over. These give the paintings real depth. He also laced each with intricate textures of colours and brushstrokes that become more vibrant as you look at them. 
All of the complexity in the paintings generates their sense of simplicity and urgent energy. Although my words inspired them, I couldn't have created these paintings. Nick is a designer and a visual artist. He has a natural aptitude and passion for visual work, a sensitivity to line, colour, shapes and textures, and to how they can be formed into new creative ideas. He develops his ideas through paint, chalks, pastels, printmaking, film, digital imaging and a whole host of other visual media and materials. The materials he uses on any given project affect the ideas he has and how he works on them. You can think of creativity as a conversation between what we're trying to figure out and the media we're using. The paintings that Nick finally gave us were different from how they started out. Their appearance evolved as he worked on them, and what he wanted to express became clearer as the paintings took shape. Creativity in different media is a striking illustration of the diversity of intelligence and ways of thinking. Richard Feynman had a great visual imagination, but he wasn't trying to paint a picture of electrons. He was trying to develop a scientific theory about how they actually work. To do that, he had to use mathematics. He was thinking about electrons, but he was thinking about them mathematically. Without mathematics, he simply couldn't have thought about them as he did. The Wilburys were thinking about love and relationships, life and death and the whole damn thing. But they weren't trying to write a psychology textbook. They were thinking about these things through music. They were having musical ideas, and music is what they made. Understanding the role of the media we use for creative work is important for another reason. To develop our creative abilities, we also need to develop our practical skills in the media we want to use. It's important that we develop these skills in the right way. I know plenty of people who have been turned off math for life because they were never helped to see its creative possibilities. As you already know, I'm one of these people. Teachers always presented math to me as an interminable series of puzzles to which somebody else already knew the answers, and the only options were to get it right or wrong. This is not how Richard Feynman thought of math. Equally, I know many people who spent endless hours as children practising scales on the piano or guitar and never want to see an instrument again because the whole process was so dull and repetitive. Many people have decided that they were simply no good at math or music when it's possible that their teachers taught them the wrong way or at the wrong time. Maybe they should look again. Maybe I should. Opening your mind. Creative thinking involves much more than the sorts of logical, linear thinking that dominate the Western view of intelligence and especially education. The frontal lobes of the brain are involved in some higher order thinking skills. The left hemisphere is the area that's most involved in logical and analytical thinking. But creative thinking usually involves much more of the brain than the bits at the front and to the left. Being creative is about making fresh connections so that we see things in new ways and from different perspectives. In logical, linear thinking, we move from one idea to another through a series of rules and conventions. We allow some moves while rejecting others because they're illogical. If A plus B equals C, we can figure out what C plus B equals. Conventional IQ exams typically test for this type of thinking. The rules of logic or linear thought don't always guide creative thinking. On the contrary, Creative insights often come in non-linear ways, through seeing connections and similarities between things that we hadn't noticed before. Creative thinking depends greatly on what's sometimes called divergent or lateral thinking, and especially on thinking in metaphors or seeing analogies. This is what Richard Feynman was doing when he saw a connection between the wobbling plate and the spin of electrons. The idea for George Harrison's song, Handled With Care, came from a label he saw in a packing crate. I don't mean that creativity is the opposite of logical thinking. 
The rules of logic allow enormous room for creativity and improvisation within themselves. So do all activities that are bound by rules. Think of all the creativity in chess and in different types of sport, poetry, dance and music, where there can be very strict rules and conventions. Logic can be very important at different stages in the creative process, according to what sort of work we're doing, particularly when we're evaluating new ideas and how they fit into or challenge existing theories. Even so, creative thinking goes beyond linear and logical thought to involve all areas of our minds and bodies. This is the end of the CD. The audiobook continues on the next CD.